Hello and welcome to this Head Talks podcast. I'm Terry Stiasny and I've been talking to Professor Richard Layard of the London School of Economics, one of the first economists to study our happiness. When you first started studying happiness and the economics of happiness, <clears throat> it must have seemed like quite an unusual subject to take on, um, particularly for someone with an economics background. How much has changed, certainly in policy terms, since you began studying this area? Well, the first thing that changed is that we persuaded governments to measure the happiness of the people. So Britain was the first country which did this. Then it was taken up by the OECD, that's the Club of Rich Nations based in Paris. And now all of their members are measuring the happiness of their people in an official survey on an annual basis. But, of course, the next thing is to get policy reoriented to improving the happiness of the people. And that's the next phase, which is, has got quite a long way. In fact, I just came back from an OECD conference where they were asking countries what they were doing to improve the well-being of their people and how far they were taking that as the overarching objective. Because, of course, what we want um, is for the whole of government policy to be oriented towards the well-being of the people. If you're to have coherent policy, there's got to be one thing only that you measure it against because otherwise you can't compare the claims of one policy with another. There has to be an outcome which you value and, and you see to what extent the different policies contribute to it relative to their cost. And there is increasing interest in that. There are groups of governments that have been discussing this, mostly small countries. The most striking, of course, has been New Zealand, which the new um, woman prime minister announced was taking well-being as its goal, and uh, they announced their well-being budget in last April or May. Others are, interestingly, also headed by women. Iceland and uh, Scotland have formed a small alliance. There are other alliances involving countries like Slovenia, Costa Rica, but the big countries have been slower. In Britain... There is huge interest in it. There's been a What Works Centre for Wellbeing established with government money, which is feeding evidence on how different policies affect wellbeing into uh, the civil service. And at the political level, the Liberal Democrats have come out with their view that uh, wellbeing should be the objective of the government. There's a lot of interest um, in the upper parts of the Labour Party and and some interest in, uh, I know, some Conservative cabinet ministers. So it stays coming. The, the task that people like myself have um, is to provide the evidence base that can be used for helping politicians to, to know what the well-being effects are of different policy changes they could make. You mentioned there that this is an issue that cuts across parties to a certain extent. Do you come up against a resistance with people saying, well, happiness or well-being is a luxury that perhaps we can't afford at a time when government spending is relatively thin? It's not a luxury at all. I mean, it's, it's the uh, well-being refers to how we feel about everything that happens in our lives. If you're that happy, uh, it means you're feeling good. Uh, you want to go on feeling that way. If you're unhappy, you're feeling bad and you want to change from that state. And this is a, a dimension of each of our lives every hour. The question is, of course, what are the main factors affecting it? So we've been doing a lot of research on that. 
which you can do by looking at how people answer questions about happiness and then looking at other things that you know about them from the same survey. And always in our analyses, the thing that explains the greatest amount of uh, variation of happiness, and particularly great, the greatest amount of misery, is mental health problems, diagnosed mental health problems. Then the quality of work is very important, whether you're getting on with your boss. Very important, because you spend a lot of your time there. Then your family, whether you have a partner, whether that's going okay. Then physical health, and income is much less important. So it's not just an old wife's saw, <laughs> you know, that money is not the, the source of all happiness. It's a fact. And government policy has got to reflect that. So we've got to get away from the idea that increasing the national income, the economic growth in the long term, is the only test of whether our policies are good. We've got to get to the point where we're judging everything in terms of how it impacts on the quality of people's experience day by day. And what are the policy priorities that you think government should be putting in place to try to promote well-being? Well, we founded an all-party parliamentary group on well-being. It was founded about eight years ago, and just recently, this year, it produced a report on precisely that. But we set out what we thought would be the priorities if the government's aim was well-being. So the number one priority was improving mental health services, not only for adults, which means uh, expanding the talking therapies that are already being provided through the Improving Access Psychological Therapies Programme, but extending them to cover issues of uh, profound importance to people, like family conflict, domestic violence, uh, and also, of course, substance abuse, uh, which is such a massive problem and destroys so many lives and the lives of people around them. Adults are still need a much better service, but children, we're even further behind, because unless the child is really seriously ill and get over the, the CAMS threshold, there really is no treatment available at the moment. But the government has agreed to set up uh, what's called mental health support teams, which would be similar to the adult teams in the sense that they would be trained a new workforce of trained therapists, but they would be based in schools rather than in clinics, so that there was no stigma attached to getting helped, and it would happen as, as soon as it was necessary so that you get over the problem of people having to become really, really ill um, before they get any, any help. That is going going well. Um, it needs a lot more money than it's been offered. It needs to focus much more on conduct disorder as well as on anxiety and depression and uh, ADHD. And it needs to have a higher, a higher skills level of, of therapist included in, in these, these teams. But it's a move in the right direction and we should be very pleased about it and put our our, our strong support behind it. So mental health is, is the number one priority mm. in the sense of treating people who are out there currently suffering and, and, and causing suffering in their families. But, um, of course, we want to prevent mental illness. And the big lever we have there is schools. And we know schools make a very big difference to the happiness of children. Uh, that's a research finding. And they can make a difference for good if... I would say three things happen. One, it, the 
happiness of children is an explicit goal of the school. Two, the school is measuring on a yearly basis how the children's happiness is developing so that the school knows whether it's doing a successful or unsuccessful job. And then three, teaching life skills in an evidence-based way. And um, I've been involved in the uh, so-called Healthy Minds Development, which is a four-year curriculum for weekly lessons in life skills, which has been very successful and we hope will, will spread because the politicians, to give them credit, present government, have for the first time made the teaching of relationship, uh, sex and health education compulsory. So, so this is a big, big moment when we can do something to prevent mental illness. And just going on, the other two priorities which we identified were um, the transition from school to work, where so many people don't get a sense of purpose or proper stake in society because they don't acquire a skill, so much more organised development of uh, the part-time route through further education and apprenticeship. And then, of course, the whole social care issue that has to be addressed. So those those are what we thought were the four priorities. So those are the positive things that policy can do. At the kind of times we're in at the moment, when politics seems very turbulent, can the state of public life actually be a factor in making people less happy? I think it can, but I think that can be exaggerated, actually, because people's um, happiness is largely dependent on what's going on closely around them. Uh, Now, of course, if at some point um, we have a Brexit that that means that lots of people are losing their jobs, that will surely cause a lot of misery. But I think that some people are worried about that and therefore it's causing misery now. But I think... more misery will come later. You talked about the importance of teaching children good life skills and good methods for coping with mental health problems, you know, perhaps even preventing them before they arise. Do you think the public in general have become much more aware of mental health and mental well-being as an issue? And are we, are we finding something new in terms of mental health or are we just uncovering problems and issues that may actually have been there generations ago, but we didn't perhaps have the language or the ability to talk about? Well, we've got, and Britain has, has had four surveys of the men- mental health going back to the early 1990s and parallel ones for children. So we know there's been some increase in mental health problems, but that's not the main factor at work, in my view. In my view, what's at work is a a profound cultural change that's been going on for decades towards a greater interest and willingness to think about and talk about what's going on inside yourself. And and this is not only to do with mental illness, but to do with life in general. People have become more psychologically aware. These issues are discussed very much more in the newspapers. Mental health, for example, uh, if you look up the database on articles in The Guardian, you'll find that the number of articles on mental health has gone up by a factor of five. This is just an extraordinary change. And people are now feeling less stigmatised and more able to talk about mental health issues than they were. Of course, it's still not easy, but the situation has changed absolutely extraordinarily, which is a, a hugely hopeful feature. So I think we are we are moving to a more 
open approach which takes the, the inner life seriously. I, I think actually behind it is the growing influence of women who have always been more interested and more inclined to talk about these issues than, than men have been. That is why this probably will continue <laughs> uh, well, well on into the future. One thing that has certainly changed since you first started writing on this issue, in your earlier books you talk about the impact of television in terms of comparing ourselves to others and whether that may make us less happy because we see other people. Now we're carrying the internet and social media around in our pockets. We have a constant source of comparison to other people's lives that you know, literally we can take out and look at out of our pocket. Has the internet and social media had an impact on people's well-being? I'm absolutely sure it has. And when we're talking about mental health, the big change ha has been in the mental health of adolescents. Uh, that's, that's certainly true in very good data for America and for Britain. And they, of course, are the ones who, who are most affected by the social media. And the timing of the increase in mental distress, particularly in America, is exactly coincident with the timing of uh, the uh, arrival of social media. So from 2010 onwards, you get the numbers of people on Facebook shooting up and you get the number of people uh, experiencing mental distress shooting up. Of course, correlation is not causation, there have been a smallish number of controlled trials where people have been randomly denied access to Facebook for a, a week and compared with people who weren't, and they've become much happier. <laughs> and there's also a lot of historical evidence day by day when people are keeping diaries, the, the, the days when they uh, spend time online, particularly on social media, are days when their, their happiness tends to go down and the, the opposite when they're, they're not doing that. So I think this is a very, very profound thing and we've, we'll have to find ways, obviously, uh, a part of teaching life skills is teaching people how to manage social media and not become obsessed with um, the impression that they're making uh, on a day-by-day -day basis, which is such an awful thing. But there'll also have to be, I'm quite sure, we'll find ways of regulating uh, social media, as we have all, all innovations have in the end got regulated when they caused social turmoil. I'm very struck by the fact that in 1930, the number of people killed on the roads was, I don't know if you know, about three times higher than it is now. I mean, we've... It takes a while for people to react to a new technology. It, it means that they have to modify their views of what freedom is. It was felt at that time that the freedom to just drive anywhere uh, at any speed <laughs> was was uh, sort of inherent in the human condition. So we, we're going to have to find ways of, of regulating social media. One final thought. You've thought about this issue a lot in policy level on a huge global scale. What are the things that make you happy when you think about your own personal happiness? It's always your family life, isn't it? Uh, this is true worldwide. So um, being with my wife is, is always the happiest time, especially if I'm not working. <laughs> uh, I do actually enjoy my sport enormously. I, I play tennis regularly and I do enjoy my work. But I think work is a very interesting thing. It gives a lot of meaning to people's lives if it's a meaningful job. And not everybody, unfortunately, is lucky as you and I are to have 
jobs we feel meaningful, but it doesn't mean the fact that that it's very important. Your work is very important to you. It doesn't mean that necessarily you enjoy it all the time. In fact, the fact that you care about it and that there are constant obstacles and people don't do what you want them to do or the research doesn't turn out what you had hoped it would and so on means that work work is a is a challenge, but I think it it, it of course is also a very important source of meaning, and meaning is a very important source of happiness. Richard Layard, thank you very much. My pleasure. <laughs>